how can someone live their best life? How can we live the blessed life? How can we find happiness, peace, and bliss? This is what everyone wants to know, right? I mean, if you just want to find just an interesting little project this afternoon, just Google quotes about happiness. Thousands and thousands of quotes where people are trying to motivate, encourage, and help themselves to happiness. There are many strategies, strategies in the world for how to find this blessed life and happy life. There's one in our world that seems to take the cake. Our world's strategy appears to be that happiness is found in excess. To live in abundance. To minimize pain by maximizing pleasure. The wisdom of our world says that the key to happiness is excess and abundance. Whatever your heart desires, well, you should go for it. Career, power, positions, Money, sex, it doesn't matter. Whatever feels right to you is right for you, so says the world. They attempt or encourage you to pursue happiness by medicating the pain away. That's what this month, in many ways, our culture promotes, right? That everyone should be freed to pursue whatever their heart desires. For that alone can make them happy. This perspective says happiness is something you create. A reality that you alone can determine. You are the master of your own fate. You are the captain of your own soul. Or at least that's what our world would tell us. The issue, however, is though our world boasts and promotes the way of happiness, it seems to have never found it itself. It points others to it while itself has never found the way. It is like a blind man telling other blind men how to find sight. But what does the Bible have to say about this? What does God think about all this? I mean, God is the creator of the world. Has he told us how we should live in it? Has God told us how to find happiness? Or is he happy to watch us all wallow in our misery? Well, that's the question we're seeking to find today in our Bible. So if you have your Bible, go ahead and grab them and turn to Psalm chapter 1. Psalm chapter 1. And follow along with me as I read God's Word. The psalmist writes through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, 
and its leaf does not wither. And all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. From Psalm 1, we are going to see that there are two ways to live. There are two ways to live in this world. Number one, you can live by the world. You can live by the world, or you can live by the Word. There are two ways that you can live in this world. By the world, or by the Word. Let's look at point one now. Live by the world. But we have been in the Gospel of Mark the past few months. We're taking a summer break to work through the Psalms. Though in a different testament, in a different genre, it's teaching us about the same thing, the God of the Bible. And in many ways, the Psalm are looking to and anticipating the one who would come, the Messiah, Jesus, who we've been studying. See, the Psalms are a vista, a vantage point where you get to see the entire Old Testament storyline. And you also began to see the promised Davidic Messiah who would come and rule and reign over God's people forever. The, the psalm is a collection of different poems and uh, songs and prayers that kind of show us and kind of walk us through the life of Israel's history. You have psalms all the way back to Moses to the end of Israel's exile, spanning over a thousand years of Israel's history. This is the songbook that God's people have used for thousands of years to praise God. It's made up of a whole, over 150 chapters, written over five different books and broken down into five different books, and this is what people have used to praise God privately and corporately for thousands of years. And in this book, we not only get to see how God's people think about God, but how they talk to God and how they sing to God in the midst of triumph, tribulation, and tragedy. In the book of Psalms, the human heart is well on display for us all to see. Listen to what John Calvin says about the book of Psalms. He says, What various and resplendent riches are contained in this treasury? It is difficult to find words to describe. I have been wont to call this book, not inappropriately, an anatomy of all parts of the soul. For there is not an emotion of which any one can be conscious that is not here represented as a mirror. This book has been an anchor and a constant friend to many a pilgrim who made their way to the celestial city. That they've leaned on in times of sorrow and rejoicing. And the entryway, not just chronologically, but thematically to all the Psalms is found in Psalm 1 and Psalm 2. Now, they're two different chapters, but they're basically one psalm, essentially. You kind of need both to understand them. And this morning, for our time together, we're only going to focus on Psalm 1, and then in July, we'll pick up Psalm 2. So here in Psalm 1, the psalmist starts out by saying, blessed is the man. Or it could be understood, the blessed man is, or happy is the man. Blessed or blessed and happy are interchangeable here, mean the same thing. 
The psalmist asks a really good question that I think is very relevant for us today. He says, you want happiness? You want blessing? Ask the psalmist. Well, I'll tell you. What's interesting, before the psalmist tells us what happiness and blessing is, he tells us where we won't find it. He tells us that happiness is found both negatively and positively. It's by denying something for the sake of delighting in something greater, says the psalmist. What must we deny or avoid? He tells us in verse 1, look there now, he says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. He says, you want happiness and blessing? Well, you first must deny the wisdom of the world. You must turn from sin and sinners and their deceitful desires. He's saying there's two perspectives in the world, and the first you must run from, turn from, flee from. It does not bring life. It instead brings bondage and death. And he gives us specific counsel on who we should avoid and why we should avoid them. You can see it here in verse 1. Who are we supposed to avoid? He says to avoid the wicked, the sinners, and the scoffers by not talking with them, by not standing with them, and by not sitting with them. What is he saying? I think he's meaning and saying that the happy and blessed do not seek counsel. They do not commune with. They do not conform to the ways of those who have rejected God in thought and word and in deed. Those are the happy people. I think he's showing us different dimensions of our lives different ways in which we might be tempted to interact with those who bring not life, but death. What does it mean to not walk in the counsel of the wicked? Well, first, I think it means this. The wicked are happy to tell you how you should live your life. The wicked are happy to tell you which way you should go. For misery loves company. Sinners never like to sin alone. They want others to join in with them, to pursue whatever their hearts desire. They are dissatisfied in sinning alone. They not only want you to sin, they want you to affirm their sin as good and right. And notice where the psalmist starts. He says, happy is the one who doesn't listen, who doesn't seek counsel from the wicked. When anyone gives in to sin, it means somewhere down the road, they started listening to it first. It means it was an idea before it was an act. And here's the thing we need to know today that I think we're going to see from our passage. Sin never shouts. It typically whispers. It doesn't push. It's just a gentle nudge. It poses as a friend, a a confidant, an, an ally all before it tries to kill us. It seeks to shake our hand before it ever stabs us in the back. Blessed is he who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, says the psalmist. For the wicked counsel leads not to life, but bondage and death. You could argue that Psalm 1 really is a meditation on Genesis 2 and 3. You notice that if you go back to Genesis 3. I don't know if you've read it recently. I would encourage you to sit and just go meditate on the the serpent's strategy and how naive Adam and Eve were. I mean, here you have Adam and Eve 
who were living in prosperity, but they chose poverty by listening to the counsel of the wicked. And you notice what the serpent does. He doesn't yell at them. He doesn't hold a gun to their head. He simply asks the question, did God really say? He comes like an ally. Are you sure you understand God's word correctly? Are you sure that's what God says? And Eve answers the serpent, but the serpent replies with a half-truth. And as we've heard before, a half-truth parading as a whole truth is a complete lie. And instead of talking with God, they were convinced that the serpent's counsel was more sound, more certain than the Word of God. They thought he was an ally, but turned out to be their eternal enemy. Chaos entered the world. Satan whispered, and they were happy to listen. The one who had led a rebellion in heaven had now come to recruit an army on earth. And they followed him naively. The the wicked don't merely choose to sin. They always recruit others to join in and to affirm their sin. This is what Paul says in Romans 1, 32, doesn't he? Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. The wicked don't give you counsel only. They want you to commune with them and conform to their ways. That's what the psalmist is letting us know here. I think he's showing us the decline, that it moves from listening to standing to sitting. It shows the decline of of sin and the temptation. Sinners are never satisfied just to sit and shoot the breeze. I want you to hang around a bit. Maybe come inside. Sit down and prop up your feet for a little while. Their aim is always conformity to their ways of living. It's subtle, but it's deadly. It reminds me of the Screwtape Letters. I don't know if you've read that by C.S. Lewis, a wonderful book that you should buy and read this year. Fantastic. And I don't know of anyone who's better described Satan and sin's strategy in our lives. And it kind of reminds me a little bit of here of Psalm 1. And maybe you've heard this quote before. If not, it's super useful if you have. It'll bless you either way. So here, this is Screwtape, the mentor, writes to his understudy, Wormwood, on the strategy of sin in the life of the Christian. Listen to what he says, and think about this in light of Psalm 1. You will say that these are very small sins, and doubtless, like all young tempters, you are anxious to be able to report spectacular wickedness. But do remember, the only thing that matters is the extent to which you separate the man from the enemy that being Christ. It does not matter how small the sins are, provided that their cumulative effect is to edge the man away from the light and out into the nothing. Murder is no better than cards if cards do the trick. Indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. It starts subtly, but it ends in a tragedy. It all starts with mere counsel and ends with you completely conforming to sin's ways. And if you don't give in to their persistence, it begins to become more of a pressure where those who are wicked will malign you for not participating in their sin. It's a full-on assault. This is what Peter writes to first century Christians who were experiencing this. 
He says in 1 Peter 4, 3-4, For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same blood of, a flood of debauchery. And they malign you when you don't join them. Brothers and sisters, are you in any way tempted to seek the counsel of the wicked? Or to stand in sinners? Or to join in with the mockers? Brothers and sisters, be careful who you listen to. Be careful whose counsel you are seeking. Flee from those who glory in what God hates. Flee from those who make sin look enticing and who seek to minify its devastating consequences. Flee from those who call evil good and good evil. And do not commune with those who seek to lead you down the path of destruction. For when you join in, do not be surprised that when you don't affirm their sin, they will mock and malign you. But you remain faithful to the very end and trust that it's worth losing your life over than going down the path of the wicked. Why should you avoid such people? Well, verse 5 and 6 tells us. Look there now. He says, Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. He says you should avoid such people because they will not stand in the judgment. They will not be able to bear up under the weight of God's condemnation. They will not have any part in the assembly of the righteous. He's saying avoid such people because God knows all and God sees all. And all people are accountable to Him. Every breath that we have in our lungs is from Him and He will hold us accountable for how we have used that breath. He's saying avoid them for God sees Avoid those people because God one day will judge those who've sinned against Him, who've mocked Him, and who have rejected Him. Do you notice in verse 1 where it says that don't sit in the seat of scoffers? The scoffers don't realize that Psalm 2-4 says God sits as well and He laughs at them because He holds them in derision. He sees all that they do and will bring to account all that they have done on that last day. The wicked boast that they are invincible and untouchable. But here the psalmist says they are like chaff. Just like taking some grass and throwing it in the air in the midst of the breeze. They are blown away. Jeremiah 17 picks up the same language and he calls them a shrub in a dry desert that will shrivel up and die. Sin tempts us to believe that we are like God in every way. That we are eternal and infinite. But the reality is God's judgment will blow upon all of us and help us to see we are finite and temporary. Sin deceives us to walk down the path, to join in and commune with the wicked, and ultimately to conform to its ways. But the righteous, those who are seeking to be blessed and live that happy life, they don't participate. They don't join in. They see the wicked for who they really are. They don't join in in the council. They don't commune with them or they don't conform to their ways. And instead, they follow and live by God's word. This is my second point. So the, the second way to live in this world is not by the world, but by the word of God. By the word of God. Let's look there now again and read 
verse 1 and 2 again together. Psalmist says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. The psalmist says the other way to live is not for the world, but for the word. For that is where true happiness is found. The psalmist says, blessed who denies the way in favor of trusting and believing. So you first must deny this one, say I'm not for that, to embrace positively the word of God. He says, blessed is the man who delights in the law of the Lord. The law here, though it could be talking about the first five books of the Old Testament, the the law, I think it more means the instruction as your footnote in your Bible tells you. I think this includes the entire revelation of the Bible. Blessed is the man who loves all of God's word. Brothers and sisters, the Bible is all of God's word. The Bible is all of God's word that teaches us about who God is, how we can be made right with him, and how we can live a life pleasing to him. The psalmist says, blessed is the man who does not seek counsel from, does not commune with, or conform to in the ways of the wicked, but seeks counsel from the word, who communes with the word, and who conforms to the word. That's what the psalmist says the blessed life is. We see more of what it looks like to delight in the instruction of God's word. He says in the end of verse 2, the psalmist says he, the blessed man meditates on the law when? Day and night. Though it's a good thing to sit and think about God's word for a long amount of time, long amounts of time, I think the psalmist calls us to more than that has more in mind than just sitting and thinking on the Word. I think he says to to think about it, to talk about it, to pray about it, to trust God's Word when you wake up in the morning, when you're making breakfast for your family, when you're driving to work or sitting in your office or, or sitting in class, when you're alone on your phone, when you're getting your kids down for bed, and when you're awake at night, think on the Word of God. Trust the Word of God in these places. He says we all should seek to be consumed with the Word of God. We should all love it in our inner being. This sounds very much like Deuteronomy 6. And just a quick note, if you want to understand your Old Testament better, just read Deuteronomy. It kind of gives you the whole picture of what God is doing, how He's responding, uh, responding to the people. He's given them instruction on how to live. Here are the blessings if they walk in obedience, and here's the curses if they don't. And here in Deuteronomy 6, we see instruction for how they're supposed to live. And listen to how similar it sounds to Psalm 1. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. And you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. The psalmist, along with Moses, is saying the word of God should be ever before you. It should fill your thoughts, it should fill your affections, and it should consume your life. It's kind of like this. This past week, Megan and I celebrated 10 years of being married. Amen. It's all God's grace. And we got away for a couple days just to think and reminisce on just God's kindness towards us. And we thought about the past 10 years and even further back to when we first met. So Megan and I met when we were 15 one random weekend. 
Uh, I was living in Birmingham. She was living in Beaumont, Texas, very far apart. I happened to be at her dad's church on one Sunday when I was 15, and I met her. I thought, she's super cute, so I might as well get her AOL instant message. What's up? You know what I mean? <laughs> R.I.P. AIM. But I was so obsessed with her that I would just sit downstairs and just wait for her to get on. And we'd talk forever. And then we moved to start talking on the phone. And I would just want to talk to her all the time. And I want to text with her. And then we're dating long distance. All I could think about is I just want to be with Megan. That's how the psalmist wants us to think about the Word of God. That we just think about it. We just, we just love it. That we just consider it. That it fills our thoughts and our, our words. That it's no burden for us. It's a joy to think on the Word. To meditate on the Word. To, to talk about the Word because we love it so dearly. That's what the psalmist calls us to. And he's saying that this is the blessed life, the man who loves the Word of God and seeks to live by it. Now here's something that we need to understand that will help us figure out this passage and really the rest of the Bible. Is, well, let me ask this question. What does he mean by blessed and happy? You don't have to answer that, but just think in your mind, what does he mean by blessed and happy? And to make matters more interesting is in verse 6, he calls this person the righteous is he saying that happiness and blessing is found for those who deny the way of the wicked love god's word and seek to fulfill god's word yes that's what he's saying but here's the problem none of us have done that or none of us can do that later in psalm 14 what does it say there is none righteous no not one There's none of us who have been faithful. Because of our first parents and our own decisions, we have sinned against God. We have not only walked in the counsel of the wicked, nor stood in the way of sinners, nor sat in the seat of scoffers. We have been the sinners, the wicked, and the mockers. That is who we are. And we don't delight in God's law because we cannot delight in God's law. It's an offense to us, and it condemns us this happiness and blessedness the psalmist holds out isn't some mere subjective feeling isn't some emotion or some affection that we feel what he means is this happiness and this blessed state is living at peace with god it is being made right with god it's living a life pleasing to him but here's the question how can we be made right with god Our own merits are insufficient. We try and yet we fail every time. So you can be righteous before God in one of two ways. Through your own merits or through the merits of another. And the first option is no option at all. So how can we be made right with God? Well, we're going to cheat a little bit and look to Psalm 2. That's where David gives us the answer. Who could make us righteous? Who would do it? Well, David begins to talk about God's anointed in Psalm 2. And in verse 12, he says, Kiss the Son, lest He be angry, and you perish in the way. For His wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. David says if you want blessing, then take refuge in God's anointed. You must run and cling to God's King, for there is salvation alone in Him. I want you to notice something that Psalm 1 starts with, blessed is the man. And how does Psalm 2.12 end? Look in your Bible. Blessed are all. So he's saying, you want this blessing and salvation, you must come to God's anointed. 
But the question remains, is David talking about himself? I want you to go to Deuteronomy 17. I wasn't planning to do this, but just go there for fun. A little Bible drill. Deuteronomy 17. Again, read Deuteronomy. It'll help you understand your whole Old Testament. Deuteronomy 17, verse 14 through 20. Though God is Israel's king, God knew there would be a day when his people would reject him as king. And they would want a king like everybody else. That's what it says here in Deuteronomy. God says you can get your king if you want your king. But here's the instruction for your king. You can kind of see all these requirements. He says in verse 17, He shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he require for himself excess silver and gold. Verse 18, And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law, approved by the Levitical priest. And it shall be with him, and he shall read it, Read in it all the days of his life that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them. That his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers. That he may not turn aside from the commandment either to the right hand or to the left so that he may continue long in his kingdom and he and his children in Israel. The king represented the people. And the people would flourish as long as the king was faithful. But here's the problem. There was not a king that could be faithful. Which king in the Old Testament who would keep God's law perfectly? Who would fear the Lord and keep all of his words and all his statues? Would it be David? Clearly not. Would it be Solomon? Nope. Would it be Hezekiah or Josiah? No. These were all sinners and they died and they're still dead to this day. They were looking to the righteousness of another. And who would it be? None other than Jesus Christ. He alone is blessed and happy. He alone rejected the counsel of the wicked when Satan tempted him in the wilderness. He alone loves God's law. He alone obeyed God's law. And he alone fulfilled God's law. He is the righteous one. And there is salvation found in no one else. Not only did he fulfill the righteous requirement of the law, He took the punishment for those who had no righteousness of their own. He did, as Martin Luther called, the wonderful exchange, where he became like us so that we could become like him. Christ, through his life, death, and resurrection, fulfilled the law, he satisfied God's wrath, and he secured righteousness for all who would repent and believe. Christ's righteousness freely imputed to all who would turn from their sins and trust in the Lord Jesus. That's what we confessed earlier today. Our message is on repeat because it's a really good message. It's a life-changing, life-altering message. This is in the article. You can look in your bulletin now there. You can see it. I'm going to read it again because it's so wonderful because I don't think you got it well enough the first time. This is what our article, this is what if you're a member of this church, you say we believe. We believe that the great gospel blessing which Christ secures to such as believe in Him is justification. Being made right with God just as if I've never sinned. That justification includes the pardon of sin, the promise of eternal life on principles of righteousness. Whose righteousness? Christ's. That is bestowed not in consideration of any works of righteousness which we have done, but solely through faith in the Redeemer's blood by virtue of which faith is His perfect righteousness is 
freely imputed. It means we're not coming back for more. It means we don't get any extra. It does not increase. It does not uh, decrease. It is fixed forever because Christ's work was effective. His blood finished the work. He accomplished the task. That it brings us into a state of most blessed peace. Psalm 1, it's the blessed man with favor with God and secures every other blessing needful for time and eternity. Do you want to be blessed and happy? Then turn from your sins and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Turn from following the wicked to follow the righteous one who laid his life down for you so that you could be made right with him. And if you'll come and find refuge in him, you will find salvation for your soul and you'll be eternally happy and blessed forever. Though we have been made right with God, we still seek to obey God's law, not for salvation, but from salvation. We love God's law not because we're trying to increase our justification. That can't happen. That's eternally fixed in heaven. We're simply seeking out to live what is an eternal reality already. We are holy and blameless before him, and so we're seeking to live that way in this life. We seek to obey God's word because we've been saved for Jesus and to be like Jesus. And according to 1 John 5, we seek to obey God's word because his commandments are no longer burdensome to us. They're a joy and a delight in our inward being. There's no no greater joy in this life than knowing God and living a life pleasing to him. We have been saved to live for him and like him. That's why we gather around the word each week. Because we are a people who think the word of God is amazing. Because we have been saved by the word. And we trust, according to Jesus in John 17, we are being sanctified by the word. Brothers and sisters, let's pray that we would be a people who love the word of God. Let's pray that we individually, as members of this church, would love the word of God, would be conformed by the word of God, shaped by it. As we meet up with one another in our homes or at lunch or over coffee, let's just say, hey, what are you reading in your Bible? If you're not reading, let's read together. Because we trust it's really good for our hearts. Let's be marked as people of the book who trust that God's word is true and that it always accomplishes its purposes. Here the psalmist says the blessed man, that righteous man, is truly Jesus, I think, ultimately. But then those who have been made righteous because of Christ, well, they continue to love God's word and delight in it, and they are like something. He calls them like a tree in verse 3. Look there now. He says, He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither and all that he does he prospers so he uses the imagery of not just any ordinary tree not a wild tree but a tree that is intentionally planted by streams of water and it prospers it it flourishes one commentator highlighted that this kind of echoes back to genesis 2 where the trees were planted by the rivers So to love God's word, in a sense, is to return back to this Edenic state where you're flourishing because the word brings life to you. Again, Jeremiah 17 picks up this same language. Jeremiah 17, though, says that this man who loves God's word, even in dry and weary lands, will flourish. His leaf will not wither. And you notice that this tree, it bears fruit. Why does a tree bear fruit? Does the tree bear fruit for itself? Or does the tree bear fruit for another? The tree bears fruit for another. 
So for us, when we flourish spiritually, when we're walking with God, when we're loving His Word and obeying His commands, that fruit is not for us to look at. The fruit is for other people to enjoy and benefit from. Loving God's Word, obeying God's Word, produces spiritual fruit in us that are to be a blessing for those around us. Do you understand that it's part of your job as a member of this church to flourish spiritually? It's part of your job as a member of this church to love God's Word on your own, to pursue God's Word on your own. Because as you do that, I'm convinced the more you love God, the more you're going to want to help other people love God. That's just the natural outworking of what a Christian does. When, I first, when we first had it in our heart to, to plant this church and went through this assessment to get, uh, raise money for our church, they were concerned that we had 40 Christians. They're like, what's your evangelism program? I said, the Christians. They're like, what do you mean? I said, if I have 40 people who say they're following Jesus and they're not helping other people follow Jesus, I'm not sure they're following Jesus. Because the natural outworking of a Christian is the closer I get to God, the more I want to bring other people to Him. That's what the psalmist is saying here. He says also, he's not only like a tree, but that he prospers in all that he does. He prospers in whatever he does. What kind of prosperity do you think the psalmist has in mind? We need to be careful, because we as Americans love to hear this, don't we? We love to hear that he's going to prosper us. Is he saying that if you're faithful to God's word, your bank account will never be low? That it will always be full? That you'll never experience sickness and, and hardship and trial and loss in this life. If he's saying that if you follow God's word, your life will be easy and a smooth path all the way to heaven. No. See, this prosperity that he's talking about, it transcends anything this world has to offer. It's a spiritual prospering. A prospering despite worldly circumstances. I mean, if you read all the Psalms, what you're going to see is people who are being faithful to God's Word, and they're suffering for it, and yet they still praise God. You're going to see people in the Psalms who are in the the darkest parts of their lives, and yet they're giving God the praise He's due and clinging to the promises, because this kind of prospering, it sustains you through every season and storm. It's not based on circumstances. It's the assurance that we have that because of Christ, of what He has accomplished for us on our behalf, that we will not enter into the judgment. That our place is with the assembly of the righteous where we will never perish. It causes us to prosper in every season. But how do we know this? Look at verse 6. It says, For the Lord knows the way of the righteous. What does it mean that God knows the way of the righteous? I mean, doesn't God know every person since he's created them all and given them life? Yes. But this knowledge isn't just mere mental knowledge. It's God's affectionate love that he has set on his people. You see, the blessed man, he prospers through every season and storm because he knows that his God loves him. That his God will not desert him that he will not leave him alone, that he will bring him to himself. It's kind of prospering that would cause someone to say, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. 
We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. There was nothing about any earthly prosperity there. Nothing about all that we might gain in this world. Because when you've gained everything in Christ, you need nothing else. It sustains you through whatever trial you might face. Knowing that God loves us, it changes everything about our lives. Knowing that we are at peace with God changes everything. It's the kind of prosperity that knows no inflation or recession. It's the kind of prosperity that sustains us through every season and storm. The kind of prosperity that cannot be touched by the loss of a home or a job. The kind of prosperity that can't be affected by persecution and suffering. The kind of prosperity that cannot be altered by a cancer or terminal diagnosis. Because it sustains us through every trial that we might face. Knowing that you've been made right with God, it changes everything about your life and how you view this world. You sing along with Martin Luther that the body they may kill, but God's truth abideth still. You say with the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 6.10 that we may be sorrowful, yet always rejoicing, as poor, yet making many rich, as having nothing, yet possessing everything. When you live by the Word, it doesn't matter what the world throws at you. It doesn't matter what the world takes from you. Because you know that the grass withers, the flower fades, politicians rise and fall, cultural pressures will go and cease. But God's Word remains forever. You trust that God's Word is as certain as He is. And what He has promised He does, He will do. He never turns back on His Word. He never starts something, then stops. He always brings it to completion. So how then will you live? By the world or by the Word? Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we come to you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, the only righteous one who secured our place among the assembly of the righteous, who because of him we will never perish, who because of him we have access to you, and who because of him we now get to delight in your word and obey it. Father, we pray that we would be a people who love your word, who think on your word, who are shaped by your word, and that you would continue to send your word out to build us up, to get glory for yourself through whatever we go through in this life. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.